Church, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 13 through 23. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a paperback Bible somewhere in your row. Love it if you would hunt that Bible down and turn with us this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verses 12 through 23 this morning. We're going to read that in just a moment. We are going to take the next two weeks before launching an Acts sermon series that will take us through the fall. And actually, because the book of Acts is quite lengthy, it'll take us into the spring as well. But before we launch into that in just a few weeks, um, we want to spend just two weeks on an abbreviated sermon series entitled, Who is the Church? Now, that's an important uh, way of phrasing it. Often we have asked the question, what is the church? And by that, we could mean a lot of different things. We could mean, what is the mission of the church? Uh, tell me about where your church meets, or what are the, what are the traditions of the church, or what are the beliefs of the church, or what are the practices and ministries? What sort of things does your church have to offer? We could ask all of those questions, but there is a question that comes before it. It's prior to it, and it goes right to the definition of the church, and it's the question, who is the church? Because a church is a people. Yes, a people with a mission. Yes, a people with a mission to point our community to Jesus. We could phrase it a number of different ways. Different churches phrase that, diff- that mission it, with different words. But in essence, it point, it, the bottom line is to point our community to Jesus. But that mission that we have is a mission that is shared by a people. It's given to a people, and it's given by a person. And so we ask the question, who is the church? A few years ago, we did a, a longer version of this series, and we answered the, church, the, the question in this way. The church is Jesus, because Jesus is the head of the church. The church is elders, because the elders are senior leaders under Jesus. The church is deacons, as lead servants in the church. And the church is partners together who lead and serve together under the elders and deacons with Christ as the head of them all. But this morning I want to ask a crucial question that if Jesus is the head of the church, ought we not consider his purpose, his vision, his marching orders for the church? What does it mean for Jesus to be the actual head of his church? And the passage that we're going to look at this morning considers that for us. Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 23. Follow along with me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Heavenly Father, you know our intention this morning. Our intention, we confess, is to set our mind on the things of God. Our confession is not to just begin, our intention is not to just begin with a confession, but to continue in reflection that you would do the work of transformation in us. This is our intention this morning, but we know that our intentions are impure, just as Peter's confession was incomplete. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be patient with us, that you would rebuke what needs rebuked, and that you would do a transformative work, not because we have intended something, but because you have graciously, with enduring steadfast love and mercy, because you've done something among us. Pray that you would do it by your word so we know it's you, and that your spirit would work among your people so that we would know it's by your power. Thank you, Lord. We trust you to work in your church, to form your church this morning. You would create faith. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, crucial question about this passage. Why if the title of the message is, Who is the church? And the answer is Jesus. Would I go on to read a passage that's all about a dude named Peter, right? Why read a passage about Peter in a sermon about Jesus, who is the head of the church? Well, I want to begin by asking this question. Is this passage about Peter, or is it about Jesus? Because like so much of the scriptures, we pay far too much attention to the actors in the story, and we don't pay attention to what the story is actually there to teach us, you see. We tend to be idolatrous by making idols out of the characters of the stories of the scriptures when they are often fallen and foolish characters. And even when they're not, they're not as great as the greatest character. Matthew does not record this passage to tell us something about Peter. Hear that. Remember that as we walk our way through. He, he records it to tell us something That is one of the most important things that we can possibly know about Jesus. So let's begin by asking this question. What did Peter confess? Well, he confessed the Christ, right? Look at it with me. We're going to pay attention to the words of the word. Jesus confesses. In verse 18, I tell you, I'm sorry. Jesus' confession about what Peter is and what he would commission him to be. Simon Peter replied in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. So his first 
Confession is Jesus is the Christ. Now, the word Christ is a technical term. It's a term also used interchangeably in different languages as Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. A technical term that means you are the anointed one. Anointed for a specific task, for an endeavor. All right? He has been anointed or established to do the work that God had appointed for him. Jesus is the Christ from God. He is the Christ from God, anointed by God for a particular work. He doesn't reveal that work until verse 21. And then the Apostle Peter winds up having a bit of a problem with what Jesus has to say there. But right now, he's at least willing to confess, yes, you are the anointed one, appointed by God for a particular work, even though at this point Peter is confused about the nature of that work. Secondly, Peter continues in verse 16 to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So you're not only sent from God, given a task to do, but you are one with God, the Son of the living God. This is an awesome confession. At the essence of the confession, what Peter did is he confessed Jesus. He confessed you are who you said you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, before we get too excited about Peter and begin to to throw a Peter celebration day because he made a great confession, let's ask the next question. In the next thing that happens in the passage, who named Peter? You see, Peter didn't name Jesus. Peter didn't anoint Jesus in that moment. He didn't declare that you are the Christ. No. And we see that because Jesus immediately goes about that sort of authoritative work in the passage. Who is, who named Peter? Jesus calls Simon Barjona Peter. Simon, son of Jonah, you are Peter because I have authority to name you. I'm the, I'm the one who gets to declare who you are. I'm the one who gets to commission you. I'm the author. Jesus is the author. Jesus is the commissioner. He is the founder and he is the builder that we'll see in this passage. Now, Peter, as an apostle, as an eyewitness, as a confessor of the Christ, he is going to serve a pivotal role in the establishment of the early church. But Jesus is not making Peter the chief pastor over the whole church. Jesus is establishing Peter as an authority, yes, but Jesus is establishing his authority over Peter right here in this passage, even as he establishes Peter as a sort of chief servant in the church. Listen to 1 Peter 5.4. I think it would be worth, so we are never confused about this, writing 1 Peter 5.4 in the margin of your Bible right there next to this passage. 1 Peter 5.4 says this, And when the chief shepherd appears, speaking of the return of the Christ, of the return of Jesus, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now listen, the word Shepherd is the word pastor. The word shepherd doesn't mean pastor. It is the word pastor. All right? To be a pastor is to be a shepherd. To be pastoral is to be among the fields and among the flock. It's what it means. So when it says, when the chief shepherd appears, 
it, it doesn't just mean, it is actually saying when the lead pastor appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here's the deal. Jesus reserves the name senior pastor, lead pastor for himself. What that means is if I or anyone else claims to be senior or lead pastor of any church, we only do so like an ambassador is to a president. We aren't, but we come in the name of. You see? An ambassador's authority is only insofar as he is faithful to speak the words and do the deeds that are in alignment with the one whom he represents. So where does a pastor get the words of Jesus, the the chief shepherd, the senior pastor of the church? Friends, this church has a senior pastor and he will endure no matter what happens to me. Where does the pastor in the meantime get the words for authority in the church? Where does he discover the deeds marked out for a senior leader in the church? Well, we get the words from the Word of God, the Bible, His words, His authoritative teaching. And we don't act like Peter is acting like some sort of supreme leader in this passage. As an apostle, he speaks with authority. And he speaks with clarity regarding Jesus. And what Jesus has said is his gospel. Remember what Peter confesses. He does not confess that he is the senior leader. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ. What, what Jesus does is he says, yeah, that, Peter. You keep saying that. That's the word that you are given to declare to the nations. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. And as that message goes forth, as you are sent as my my under-shepherd, the gates of hell, they can't prevail against that assault. Peter leads more like a chief among equals. We see Peter going around and he acts as something like an elder, even defers to the rebuke of Paul, and he exercises authority in Jerusalem among the council and plurality that he is there. We'll see that as we walk our way through the book of Acts. We have to remember, who is it that named Peter? Peter is a man under authority. Jesus, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor, is the one who names and sends his servants. And today, to this day, we still bear his name. He has still named us. We are Christians. We are Christ people. We are the people of the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, he is the one who names. He is the one who sends. And now we ask the question, who will build the church. We find the answer very quickly. I tell you, verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. Because Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is his body. He will build his church. Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23, so helpful for understanding Jesus as head who builds his church. In Ephesians 1, it says, And he put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as 
head over all things to the church. You hear that? Jesus is head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. You see, this passage is so profound in displaying for us the, the nature of Christ to his head and the nature of the church, which is his body. And Jesus is the one who fills all in all. Throughout church history, we've often relied upon and been distracted by lots of other things than Jesus as our head. We've done it. This is an important message because we repeatedly, over and over again, forget it. Even in the New Testament, we are warned against forgetting Jesus as head of the church. Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. Colossians 2, 18 through 19. Let no one disqualify you. It's important. Let no one disqualify you, the church. Insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. You see the danger, the disqualifying. Friends, that's a serious word, right? The disqualifying danger is to be distracted by or reliant upon any other thing than Christ. I'll put it as clearly as I can. It is only as we grow with Christ as our head that our growth is growth that is from God. That is foundational to who we are and what we do as a church. It is only as we grow with Christ as our head that our growth is growth that's from God. Friends, I want you to think of it another way. If a body doesn't have a head, what is it? (laughs) It's kind of disqualified (laughs) from being a body. Anything that's growing there isn't good. (laughs) Can we agree? We have a head. We have a source. We have a means of our survival. And to choose any other thing as our head is to disqualify ourselves at best. May we not become distraction. Let let us remember who it is that builds his church and how it is that he builds his church. Recently, Acts 29, uh, Southeast Pastors. We are a a church that is part of a church planning network called Acts 29. We are a single issue network where our issue is we are churches planting churches. We believe that God is planting churches among the nations and in the southeast part of the United States, a network was gathered together and we were sitting under the teaching of one of our fellow pastors, Ray Ortland. And there in that room, he reminded us of the Lord's work in the Lord's way. He got those words from a man called Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, No Little People, he writes this, There is no source of power for God's people, for preaching or teaching or anything else, except Christ Himself. Apart from Christ, anything which seems to be spiritual power is actually the power of the flesh. 
This understanding, it's crucial to understanding the purpose and the practices of Crosspoint Coast. We We do not, as a church, want to be a people about the works of the flesh. We want to be about the work of God. And we want to go about the work of God by means of the way of God. We want to do all that we do in such a particular way that if there's any growth, if there's any increase, if there's any faithfulness, if there's any fruitfulness in our midst, we desire that it would be obvious that it is the Lord who has done this, and then it will be marvelous in our eyes. And you know what else is going to happen? If it's obvious that it is the Lord that has done this and not some other flashy thing, it's, it's obvious that the Lord has done this. It will not only be marvelous in our eyes, Lord willing, it will become marvelous in the eyes of our community because they will see something that the flesh can't do. They will see something that is happening in the transformation of the people of God unto faith and glory that only God can do. Far be it from us that anyone could say that church is great. That that church has a great pastor. That church is a great community and fellowship. That church has a great ministry and at the same time have no thought or awareness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. May that not be so. May, if there's anything that is great, if there's anything that's beautiful, if there's anything that's compelling about the people of God at Cross Point Coast, may it be immediately aware and conscious in the eyes that see it that the Lord is great. And He is doing a marvelous thing in the midst of the people of God. There is a way that the Lord gives us to live as His church. And that way puts on display His authority and His headship. I would argue if you read the Scriptures, it is a profoundly simple way. If you watch the the ministry of the Apostle Paul among that very infant church, it is a simple way. It is a way not of great wisdom. It is not a great way of great show and philosophy. It is a simple way and we must not depart from it. So what is the church do, to do? What will the church of God do in this world? Well, the passage says in verse 18, I, will, I tell you, you're Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what's the church doing? If the gates of hell won't prevail against the church, the church is assaulting the gates of hell. That's what the church is doing. Now, there's a little task. The stronghold of hell is unbelief. This is the stronghold. This is the the kingdom of hell is unbelief, faithlessness, and an orientation of the heart that is away from God and the things of God. Here's how James 1 puts it. James 1, 14 through 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives, brings forth death. 
So when Jesus is saying that his church is going to go at sin and death, what he's saying is we will go at sin and death at its root. Friends, the church ought to be against sin. The church ought to be against injustice and unrighteousness that is destroying our neighbors, even our households where we are both susceptible to it and when we participate in it. Sin and unrighteousness is what is wrong and broken with this world, but the root that the church will go at is unbelief. The church of God assaults unbelief by the open proclamation of what is true about our Christ and what He has done. Friends, it's a mystery. How does knowing something about some guy that did some stuff 2,000 years ago have anything to do with lust and sin and, and evil desires and death? Friends, it's a, it's a mystery of the gospel that is revealed in Christ. That those who believe in Him, who have trusted Him and have seen His transforming work in their life and in their midst as a church, we know it. We know what that look, looks like. And as we go proclaiming that message, the world is astounded when that message seems to work beauty in a people. And in that way, we say, wow, there really is something to this Jesus. When we go with really no other plan than to proclaim Christ. Now, this church is an imperfect church from the start, from the first moment that this commission goes out. Notice the first thing that the rock, right? (laughs) Notice the first thing that the rock of the church does after his confession and Jesus' commission. Jesus goes on in verses 21 to begin to explain his work, how Jesus is going to assault the gates of hell. And Peter's like, yeah, we're going to get them. We're going to get them gates. And Jesus then starts to talk about being betrayed, being abandoned, suffering, dying, yet rising, dying, right? And Jesus is like, I don't know about all that. Or Peter's like, I don't know about all that. I'm not so sure. Jesus, come here. We need to talk. Let me explain to you, Jesus, the way of your mission. It's going to be great. He has a whole plan in mind. whole, whole structure. And of course, he's probably going to be at the top of it. You know, he was the first commissioned. A whole structure and, and plan by which the works of the flesh are going to bring in the kingdom of God. Yeah, with Jesus at the head. And Jesus pulls him aside and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter knows who Jesus is. He just doesn't yet know his way. He knows that Jesus is good news. He just doesn't know what that good news yet is. And that that good news is the suffering of the Messiah. We talked about it in great detail last week. From this first establishment and commissioning of the New Testament church to this very day, we consistently turn to the mission of Jesus because we have a mission of our own. We think, yeah, we're going to change this county for Jesus, right? And then we unpack the series of strategies that we have because we have a great idea, Jesus. 
And we find suffering and sacrifice to be quite incompatible. But when we pay attention to Jesus and we see what, we see what he begins to unpack in this passage, we see that it is a way of sacrificial suffering, a way that he purchases for his people, a gospel that redeems a people, and a gospel that redeems a people to a work that is going to look a lot like his. Peter is a fallible under-shepherd from the first moment of his commissioning. His word and authority holds weight only insofar as he speaks the words that carry the authority of the Lord himself, and he's not yet there yet in this passage. When he doesn't, we must receive the severe rebuke of the Lord. We have to receive it and say, oh Lord, then tell me. <laughs> I see I'm wrong. I see the, I'm still have my mind on the ways of the flesh. Show me the ways of the Spirit. There's an important note that is in this passage. It is not that the church has a delegated authority. It kind of looks like it in this passage if you just sort of breeze over it. But it is not a delegated authority. It's not as though Jesus has called a select few people to have autonomous authority while he's gone. Hey, while I'm gone, you're in charge, do a good job, I'll appear kingdom of heaven. Right? That's how we treat it so often. But the first problem with that theory is he's not gone. Do you get that? He is the all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God who reigns over his church from his throne in heaven. He also personally meets and is present with his people by his spirit among the members of the church. Friends, he's not gone. To this day, he still exercises the authority of his headship in the church. It's not delegated authority. He still holds it all. Secondly, he maintains complete authority. He maintains complete control. Any authority that anyone else has is only according to the Word. The authority is still present with us. Whatever is bound by those whom He has appointed is bound because Jesus bound it. And whatever is loosed by those whom He appointed is loosed because we are simply proclaiming what He has already loosed. To put it another way, what we have authority to do is to declare what Jesus has already done. That's why it's so important that the church constantly remember. That's why we don't come with new things. It's why we don't come with new ideas and new teaches and three easy steps that we came up with this past week. We can't because we have no authority to. The authority that God has given to His church is an authority to repeat His words. We don't have an authority in and of ourselves, a delegated authority to forgive sins, but we do have an authority to declare the forgiveness of sins accomplished by Christ. Do you see? We don't have an authority in and of ourselves to condemn sinners. But we do have authority to declare that Jesus has a rightful rule and to call sinners to repentance and belief because this is the commissioning that Jesus has given to us. It's what we declare over ourselves every week. So functionally... How does this play out in the life of the church? How is Jesus the functional head? Jesus is the senior pastor of Cross Point Coast. He is our chief and only source 
of authority and pastoral care. Again, 1 Peter 5.4, when our chief shepherd appears. We have one. But that does not mean that no one else exercises any authority and no one exercises any pastoral care. Jesus himself, by his authority, establishes officers in the church, elders and deacons. In the scriptures, even calling the whole church, the whole of the partnership, a kingdom of priests. Friends, we occupy a role in this mission, but it's a a role that is given to us by the authority of the head. I want to look very briefly at how functionally Jesus operates as lead pastor and how we exist under his authority and labor in mission together. The first thing that we do, there's only two things. The first thing that we do together as a church is we plant the gospel. We plant the gospel in a very simple way. We preach the word. And it's not just that I preach the word. It's that we preach the word. We, we do so in our hearts early in the morning. We do so in our households, wherever we are and whatever those households look like. We do so when we gather like this or when we gather in community groups. And we do so during the course of our lives, wherever we may be. We're a people who preach the word, and in so doing, we are planting the gospel. We have to be clear what we mean by the gospel. We don't just throw this word around and say that we're preaching the gospel when we're preaching the implications of the gospel. And so it starts to sound like moralism. We need to be clear that what we mean by the gospel is we mean the bad news and the good news of the gospel. That apart from God, we are lost, we are sinners, we are rebels against his name. We know this from the very beginning. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were rebels against the way of God, and they fell under the condemnation of a good king. Because let me tell you something. A good king puts down rebellion in his kingdom. And that means the judgment of God is a good thing. We ought celebrate that which condemns us. Because we say, wow, he's a good king. He's not going to put up with people making a mess of what he created good. He's just. He is righteous. He is good. But it's bad news for us. It's bad news for us who are rebels and sinners, not just by our behavior, but by our nature. Children of wrath, the scriptures call us. And it's right. But the good news is that where we deserve death for our rebellion and sin, there is one who has come who has dwelt among us. He became a man. Jesus, God the Son, dwelt among us, walked among us. But here's the difference. That little child who was himself God, Jesus, that we celebrate at Christmas, is the only one in all of history who walked in perfection, in perfect obedience to the Father. No human in all of history has done this, but this is what the Christ has done. This is what Jesus has done. Which makes me ask a huge question. What is he doing dying? Why, if he's righteous, does he suffer a sinner's death on a cross? And the answer is he died not for his own sin, but for the sin of those he came to save. His death was a substitutionary sacrifice. So that whoever's sins were died for on that day, those sins are forgiven. And the one who is forgiven is free. And the one who is free has life in him because of his resurrection that declares it worked. 
And the promise of the gospel is that he is returning for those people. He is returning for his church. We will all see him in the sky and he will bring us to himself. Friends, that's good news for sinners. And I want to call you this morning that if you know this is you, you know you're a sinner, you know you have walked away from the way of the Lord, that you have walked in disobedience, that when it came to the time of the prayer of confession, you have something to confess. This news is for you. And if you have never confessed Christ as Lord, if you have never received the forgiveness of sins, this is a call for you this morning, that you would repent and believe in the gospel. I would beg you to talk to someone, to cry out to the Lord, yes, but talk to someone you came with, talk to myself, talk to a community group leader. Let us share with you more about this gospel. Some of you have heard that gospel many, many times. But this morning you need someone to preach it to you. To hear maybe you share some of your story and discover what is true about our God that He has come to save. What is this news that we share over and over again? Because the gospel alone has the power to save. And so we are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation. So we don't devise clever strategies. We don't think of ways to grow a church or transform a community. Our first question is not, what does our community need to hear? Our first question is, what is true about Jesus? And what is his gospel? Am I clear about that? Can I declare that? Can I live in light of what is true about Christ and his gospel? Then we ask, what words? What words ought I use in my community that will best communicate that gospel? We're careful that all our strategies are first derived from how Jesus has instructed his church to preach and to live. That we will gather regularly. This is what Jesus has held out for his church to do. That we'll, our gathering will be centered on the worship of our God and the teaching of his word. This is what he's held out for us to do. That we'll prioritize repentance and faith and transformation over moralism or just helping each other live better lives. And yet at the same time, have no care for the condition of one another's souls. Friends, this is the way of the church. Secondly, we must clearly point back to Jesus as the power by which anyone's life is changed. That the heart of the gospel is proclamation and a call to faith in Jesus. Not first a call to transformation. We don't preach a gospel that says, friends, your lives must change. It's, friends, the object of your faith must change. And the object of your faith will change you. We don't declare three easy steps to a better life. We don't declare this is how to be a better American. How to be a better citizen as a Christian in our country. Or how to enjoy a church community without being first united to Christ, the head of his church. It's why we have to be careful as we become known as a church that's good at community. I've heard it. Man, I just hung out with those people and they seem to love each other and they seem to like to be together and they like to party together. It's true. We just got done with a sermon series in which we talked about meals together. But let us remember, it's meals with Jesus. It's a danger that we would become good at community because we might begin to think that that is what is good. 
Community is sweet, but Christ is good. Community is a fruit of the gospel, not the gospel itself. We want our celebration together, not merely to be about being together, but to be about being together in Christ. We don't want to grow up into something that's perceived as effective in such a way that it would appear that we did it apart from Jesus. Ray Ortland, again, one of the things that he said in speaking to the pastors there, as so many of the churches are growing and seeing fruitfulness, he writes this, is it okay if we never write a book that explains this? If we never write a book that says this is how we did it, Because in 10, 15, 20 years, if the Lord would see fit to prosper Cross Point Coast in this county, still may all we know be Christ. And if some young church planter comes along in 20 years and says, I want to do that too, all that we have to tell them is, you'd you'd better preach Christ, because that's about all we got. And it's beautiful what He's done in our midst. It's marvelous in our eyes. We want to grow the church such that discipleship is the linchpin. Seeing and savoring Jesus is the linchpin of all that we do so that if if it's removed, the whole thing just falls apart. I would love that. If we ceased being about the Word, people look around and say, why would I go to that church? They ain't got nothing but Jesus. And there's no Jesus there. There's lots of other things to do on a Sunday morning. This is why while we may do many things at Cross Point Coast, everything can be traced back to two basic structures, gospel celebration services and gospel community groups. If what we're doing can be traced back to how the gospel creates a people who gather to celebrate Jesus, And if what we do can be traced back to how the gospel transforms lives in communities and neighborhoods, lives that are sacrificial and gather in different ways, not because they love the people they gather with, but because they love the Jesus that has formed them, then we might be a church that's assaulting the gates of hell by means of the gospel of Jesus. Friends, we want to plant the gospel. But the second thing we want to do is we do want to plant the church. We want to live by faith because we believe that Jesus has authority over our words and our teaching, but also our lives and our mission. This is the second half of the Great Commission. Don't miss it. The Great Commission says this, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. You hear that? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Notice again, Jesus is with us. He's our authority, our head, our shepherd to this day. And we make disciples by first planting the gospel, yes. But we make disciples making the gospel known. But so much of our faith is also teaching who Christ is for the transformation of our lives according to His way. Practically, this means that we must pay attention to sound doctrine, yes. But we must also pay attention to faithful lives that are the implication of that sound teaching. We pay attention not only to whether or not we get gospel proclamation right, but also whether or not we get gospel practice right. What does it look like to live as His church 
and not a church of our imaginations. Jesus has not only told us who he is, he's also told us who we are and what that means for how we are to be functionally. If Jesus is the head of his church, according to the teaching of the word, we have to plant the gospel. In planting the gospel, we declare, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we declare that you were rejected, that you were betrayed, that you suffered unto death in obedience to the Father in, as a sacrificial atonement for sin. And you were resurrected and you were returning. This is what we declare. We walk as a people of the cross and redemption. We plant the gospel in our lives because we know that we need faith. We plant the gospel in the lives around us because we know that they need the same thing that we do. Forgiveness of sin and to be united to Christ. And we know that if we would plant the church, it will only be because the gospel take root, takes root in our community. And believers begin to grow up in Christ. And that, friends, is our community together. My prayer this fall is that we will live together by that faith as that kind of church. The Lord's work, yes. In the Lord's way, with Christ as the head of the body this fall. Let's pray. Lord God, we speak to you because we believe you're with us. These aren't ritualistic words that we say while we're gone so that when you return, you'll catch us at just the right moment, preferably on a Sunday at about 1030. We say these words because we believe you hear them. We believe that you are in our midst. We pray to you because you are still our authority. And we think you're glorious. We love you and we love your way. We know that even that's grace, that we love you. Lord, I pray that you would grant faith to the hearer, especially for the one who was previously apart from you, continuing in sin and unbelief, that you would save this morning. You would invade the hearts of young people, even this morning, whether it be in Crosspoint Kids or in this room, that all who hear the gospel would be saved by your gracious kindness. And Lord, that you would grow up your church. And we pray that you would do so in such a powerful way that even our community is astounded to say, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for the establishment of your church, your work, your way. We pray this in your name. Amen.